Good morning. The title of this morning's lesson is Living on the Edge. There is a great precipice. You cannot see it, but it is there. It is just as real as I am before you this morning. It has an edge that mortal man stands upon between heaven and hell. It can be the difference between an eternity of joy with our God or an eternity of torment. Remember the words of Joshua as he declared who he would serve. Now therefore fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. On one side of this edge is safety and security in a life given to God. On the other side is the downward slope of spiritual death and destruction, which is given to Satan and his worldly allurements. Mankind stands at the edge and must decide, who will I serve? A life of holy living or a life that is unholy? This morning we're going to look at three ways that Satan can lure us over the edge of this precipice to spiritual destruction. So we'll begin in the book of 1 John, that's almost at the end of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 2 and verses 15 and 17, it's a, a very well-known passage. First John 2, 15 and 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The first way that Satan can lure us over this edge to spiritual destruction is through the lust of the flesh. These are sensual and impure desires which seek their gratification with others who are not our spouses, with alcohol or drugs, or with decadent expensive foods, gluttony. This has to do with pampering our appetites by indulging ourselves in animal-like cravings and behavior, those things that excite and inflame the pleasures of the flesh in opposition to the will of God. When we talk about the lust of the flesh, we are not talking about those rare cases of mental illness that may cause one to behave this way. No, we are talking about making a choice to gratify a lustful appetite 
was sinful behavior. Knowing full well that in pleasing ourselves, we are displeasing our God. Two examples of this kind of sinful behavior can be seen in the lives of Samson and David the king. So if you'll turn with me to Judges, we'll be in chapter 14 briefly. Here we find Samson and his parents. That's Judges chapter 14 and verses 1, 2, and 3. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. In these verses, we find Samson's desire for a woman outweighs the wishes of his parents, which is to marry an Israelite, not a Philistine. The uncircumcised Philistines were despised by the Israelites. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 3 and 4, God forbade the Israelites to intermarry with the Canaanites. God's reasons for prohibiting that type of marriage are just as applicable to this marriage with the daughters of the Philistines. And in case you somehow have read forward and you're looking at verse 4 and you believe that this marriage of Samson's was somehow designed by God, you would be wrong. Verse 4 of chapter 14 does not mean that God approved of Samson's sinful marriage to the Philistine woman, but that God would use Samson's marriage to a Philistine woman as an occasion to show his displeasure to the Philistines and to move against them. Our second example of the lust of the flesh is seen in the life of David, the king. So we'll be turning to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We will not be reading the entire chapter, but we'll read those verses that give us a clear picture of the lust of the flesh in the life of David the king. Second Samuel, chapter 11, our first passage of reading will be verses 2 through 5. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David, and he said, I mean, she said, 
I am with child. Our second passage is 14 through 17 of 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab, the commander of his army, and sent it by the hand of Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew that there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. And our final passage of chapter 11, verses 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Notice what verse 27 tells us. The very last sentence of verse 27 says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The last thing that we ever want to do is displease our God with sinful behavior. The second way that Satan can lure us over the edge to spiritual destruction is through the lust of the eyes. The desire to have what one sees is one of the most powerful temptations on mankind. When we talk about the lust of the eyes, who could forget the words of Genesis Chapter 3 and verse 6. So when the woman, Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Take note of the words that it was pleasant to the eyes for Eve. The forbidden fruit was attractive to look at, which was one more allurement that drew her to sin against God. The lust of the eyes can be seen in a person's excessive desire for finery of every kind. Costly and gaudy dress, splendid homes, superb furniture, expensive trappings and decorations. The lust of the eyes is designed to gratify the sight Flashy automobiles or beautiful jewelry, the thing on which the eye delights to rest, where there is no more higher goal than ownership. When the eyes are delighted with treasures and riches and rich possessions, this can lead to covetousness, which is the inordinate desire for what one has not. It has its basis in discontentment. With, with, with what one has. It is contrary to the word of God, as we find in Hebrews 13 and 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. And our Lord speaking in Luke 
chapter 12 and verse 15, said, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. In the book of Joshua, we find a great example of the lust of the eyes that led to covetousness, which brought the anger of the Lord to burn against the children of Israel. God had instructed Joshua concerning Jericho in chapter 6. Then in chapter 7, we find the story of Achan and his sin. So we're going to turn to Joshua chapter 7, and we'll read three passages there. Joshua chapter 7. Our first passage will be 7 and verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Verses 10 through 13. So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed things from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel. There is an accursed thing in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. And our last passage from Joshua 7, quite lengthy, verses 16 through 26. That's 16 through 26. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribes of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarhites. And he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Then he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, my son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession to him, and tell me now, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus is what I have done. Take note of verse 21. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in the tent, 
with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, I'm sorry, took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughter, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned him with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, and there it is to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Accor to this day. Accor meaning trouble. The third way that Satan can lure us over the edge to spiritual destruction is through the pride of life. Of all the temptations of mankind, there is none more damning than the pride of life. The subtle way that Satan works his will through our own self-importance. It is a sickness that has only one cure, and that's the humility that God demands. We humans love to make ourselves out to be so important that we love the worship of man while we forget the worship of our God. We work hard to earn our degrees and titles. We deserve the praise and accolades, don't we? We deserve the credit, right? Yes, we do, to a point. The trouble is that after a while, if we're not very careful, we decide that God is no longer responsible for our success. We think that we are. How does God feel about the pride of life? How does God feel about forgetting him and replacing him first in our lives? Let's turn to the book of Acts and see. In the book of Acts, chapter 12, and verses 20 through 23. That's Acts 12, verses 20 through 23. This is where we find Herod the king, temporarily. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with the food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. Hunting after honors and titles, boasting of our own accomplishments, and seeking power and offices, 
can lead us farther from God and closer to the edge of our spiritual destruction. Whenever arrogance is seen in our behavior, we should recognize that we are headed down the wrong spiritual road. The pride of life refers to whatever there is that tends to promote a love of self and a contempt for others. A vain mind craves all the grandeur and pomp for oneself. While the Christian should seek to please our God, the vain person's ambition will overwhelm any desire to do so. The pride of life makes one want to be admired and flattered by the world instead of following Christ and his example. What did our Lord tell his disciples concerning the world and following him? Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 16 and verses 24 through 27. Matthew 16, 24 through 27. Our Lord had these words to say to his disciples. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in his glory with his Father and his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. There are those in the world who are capable of salvation, possessing many excellent qualities. They hear the word, they know the truth, but the cares and the riches of this world rob them of eternal life. Our Lord spoke about these people when he tried to explain to the disciples the meaning of the parable of the sower in Matthew 13 and verse 22. Our Lord said, Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. The world is passing away, and the lust of it. Those in the world fall to temptation every single day. We Christians cannot escape temptation on our own either. We are too weak. But there is a way for Christians to escape and do the will of God and thus abide forever. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 10 and verse 13, Paul wrote these words. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Any temptation that comes to us is not unique. Others have endured it, and others have come through it. All temptation, while allowed by God, is controlled by God. The Father will not allow a faithful child of his 
to be tempted beyond what they are able to bear. In the wise providence of God, he has made a way of escape from every temptation. There is a way out. The way out is not the way of surrender. It is not the way of retreat, but the way of conquest in the power of the grace of God. The fact that many Christians may and do apostatize and turn their backs on God cannot mean that they were overwhelmed by temptations, but they neglected to take the way of escape. God demonstrates his faithfulness to you and I by providing an opportunity for escape. We must show our faithfulness by seizing that opportunity when it is presented to us. As temptations vary, so the means of escape also varies. God permits temptation for our strengthening, not for our destruction. God will not fail you. So endure assured that he will support you and deliver you as he makes a way of escape. So this morning, where do you, as a member of the Church of Christ, find yourself in all of this? How great of a hold does the world have on you? God will keep us far from the edge of the spiritual precipice that leads to certain spiritual death. The spiritual destruction that awaits those who refuse to do God's will, who refuse to place their trust in him. So beware. Satan will try to lure you. He says, obey me. Enjoy life now. Take what you want. Serve me and have it all. But our God assures us, and he says, I love you. Obey me and live with me forever. We now have a hymn of invitation coming up. We always give an invitation first to those who are here this morning. And you may not be a child of God yet. You have never been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. We are here today for you. If you are willing to repent of your sins, confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and be baptized when we sing the hymn of invitation, we ask that you come forward. Or you may be a brother or sister in Christ. And I know that the lesson today was one that was a little hard to swallow for some of you, including myself. Because you could have put my name on every page of my lesson. And so you see, when I give my sermons and I practice them at home, I look in the mirror because I see Doug Budman there. Doug Budman, only through the grace of God, is in the pulpit this morning. And so we offer an invitation to the brothers and sisters here this morning because you may have moved close to that edge, away from God, and closer to spiritual destruction. And we're here to pray for you this morning. We're here to support you because we love you. And we want you to be in that home someday with us. So whatever you need is this morning, won't you come forward as together we stand and sing our hymn of invitation.